Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. We were singing, um, then I will rise among the saints, my, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. And I was thinking how the Bible says to be watching and waiting for his return. And it talks about how there will be people that miss it and then there will be people that don't. And I was thinking, man, if if our eyes are always fixed on Jesus every day, then when he returns, like we won't miss it because we'll be looking at Jesus. And so it's like, it's not this thing of like trying to figure out, okay, is it going to be today? It's like, no, it might be today, but whether it's today or tomorrow or a hundred years, whenever it is, if I'm alive, I'm going to see him when he comes because that's who I'm looking at. Like my eyes are fixed on Jesus. How could I miss it? I'm not like, thank you, Jesus, for the cross, back to life, and one day when you come back, I'll return my attention. It's like, no, you've captured my attention. You've captured my heart. You have my gaze. You have my mind. You have my thoughts. You have my attention. When you move, I move. When you speak, I listen. Go on, I just want to give you guys some good news. The gospel is the most powerful force that has ever been and ever will be. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Like it's being preached right now everywhere in power and everywhere the gospel goes. And it finds a heart that is open. It changes things. Like we're seeing like people come to know Jesus through people just preaching the gospel in the streets. We're seeing marriages restored right now. I had a conversation this morning with someone who said, man, miracles are happening already. And we just started talking on Tuesday of this week. And he's like, it's been miraculous already. And I'm like, yeah, because you know why? The gospel changes everything. Like the gospel changes every single situation. How could Jesus touch something and it stay the same? How could he? How could Jesus, the literal force that came to earth, the spirit of God that raised him from the dead that lives inside. How could you touch something and the spirit of God be in you and it not change? Come on, you're more powerful than you know because of the one who's within you. Like you are not meant to go through life weak and timid and hoping that the shoe doesn't drop, hoping that nothing bad goes wrong. You're meant to wake up in the morning and know that I have a reason for being alive today. I have a purpose. He created me for something. And I don't know what that's going to look like today as I go about my day, but man, I'm ready. I'm not going to try to get ready. I woke up ready because I woke up in Him. Like, I'm not going to try to work up faith in the moment like I believe. Well, what if I don't see it change? What if I do? What if nothing happens? What if something does? And here's the thing, like I believe something happens even when I don't see it. Like even when I don't see it, he's working. And I'm not gonna walk away and curse the seed because I didn't see the sprout. I'm gonna walk away and bless it and water it and pour onto it and believe and pray and watch and wait. And I know that I know that I know that I know that his word will not return to him void without accomplishing that which he sent it for to do. So I'm gonna fix my heart in that place. Come on, some of you need to preach this to yourselves. Some of us are waiting on someone else to have a word for us. It's like, no, it's the word implanted that is saving our souls. It's the word within me. You can, you can water it, but if the seed's not there, then what happens? Like that word has to become something that implants itself in my heart, that I believe, that I say, this I know. Come on, right now, whatever it is, 
preach that gospel to yourself. That you're not alone, you're not weak, you're not timid, you're not any of those things, you're not beat down in all those things that you feel like you are because the truth is, is that on your own you may be, but you're never on your own. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. He has a pretty good track record for resurrecting anything that's dead. Like he's undefeated. All he needs is us to just believe. To actually believe and put our faith and our trust in him. And even that is from him. I can't work up faith. I can just receive it. God, I thank you that you're faithful even when I'm faithless. And that right now, this momentary light affliction that I'm going through. Paul's being stoned and left for dead. He's being beaten 39 times by a cat of nine tails over and over again. He's being persecuted everywhere he goes. And he says, I know this, this momentary light affliction is working in me and it is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits. Momentary light affliction. What would he say about the thing that's keeping me from living in joy? If, I'm, I'm, and I don't mean this in a condemning way, I mean this in a call you up into something way. What would he say if he looked at the thing that was keeping you, your reason that you can't live with joy? If when he looked at being stoned, imprisoned, like they literally crushed his head with the final blow thinking that he was dead and left him there, assuming he's dead. He says, it's a momentary light affliction because I'm comparing it to something because I've got a perspective that's bigger than just this day. Come on, so what should you say about that thing that's keeping you from living in joy? Come on, is it a reason that's greater than the reason you have to have hopeful expectation of seeing his goodness? If it is, then Jesus isn't the name above all names. I have news. He is the name above all names. The only question is, is his name greater than that name in my life? Is his name higher than that name in my life? It's true, but is it true for me? Do I believe that? And does my life live reflect that I believe that? Or am I constantly just a, 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 like a leaf in the river, just at the whim of life being thrown from place to place? Come on, I'm not, I'm, listen, I'm not belittling anything that you're going through for the sake of just belittling it. I'm trying to magnify Jesus so that that problem starts to become small. So Jesus, right now, we just fix our eyes and our hearts on you and we say you are greater and I don't know how this ends in the temporary but I know it's finished I don't see it right now and if I was a natural human living as a natural person as a mere man I would probably lay in the fetal position curl up and die but I'm no longer a mere human because your spirit lives inside of me and I'm, not, I'm never alone. I'm never on my own. And your joy is going to be my strength. And if I don't have joy, I'm coming finding you and seeing what is it I'm not seeing? What is it I'm not believing? What is it I don't know? God, there's something missing because that joy that's supposed to be my strength isn't there. But I'm not okay not being okay. I have to find you in this moment. Because you are the source. The only one who could ever satisfy, the only name that is given that is above every name. If you can put a name on it, he's greater. So whatever it is, I would just challenge you 
to hold it up in comparison and get a perspective of the eternal weight of glory. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Father, we just thank you for that. We thank you that we can fix our eyes on you. That we can lock in on you. And we just trust you, God, that there's a day coming where I'll look back and realize I thought I was alone. I wasn't. I thought it was the end. It wasn't. That was a miserable chapter, but man, what an amazing book you're writing. And as I look back and I see the, the chapter that I would have despised, I find out that through the process, something changed in me. That the externals may have stayed the same, but you changed me through the process. And I'm more ready. I'm well equipped. There's an anointing on my life because I didn't lay down in that valley and die and become one of the dry bones. I walked through it following my shepherd, believing that if I heard something behind me, I had nothing to fear because it was goodness and mercy sneaking up behind because they follow me all the days of my life. I won't look back with dread because if I turn around and look back, it's goodness and mercy following me. If I look forward, it's Jesus. No matter where I turn, I'm hemmed in. I just thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Come on, good morning. Like, it's a good morning. Every day is a good day. Well, every day things don't go good. I didn't say every day circumstances are good. I said every day could be a good day. And, and the truth of the matter is, is when our perspective begins to shift and we actually look for Jesus in the middle of everything, suddenly we find that even in when we go through the hardest times, we always have reason to rejoice. We always have reason to be thankful. We always have a source of joy. Our faces are not meant to be thermometers that reflect the external. They're supposed to reflect the internal because we have a thermostat inside of us that's default setting is joy and peace. Joy and peace and righteousness. Come on, that means the external doesn't affect that. What's within me is supposed to bring the external into, into perspective and into view. And I'm supposed to be one who makes a difference. Come on, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. You're a believer. So come on, believer, believe. Like, believe. Believe. What did Jesus tell Jairus when, he said, when they came and told him? They said, your daughter is dead. Jesus said, he sees his heart, right? He sees that we're, we, we, the external has a voice. And so he speaks right after the external so that there's another voice speaking a better word. And he says, don't be afraid, only believe. What's he saying? Listen, you can respond to that if you want to. But I'm telling you right now, there's something else you could respond to in this moment.
Well, yeah, but that was Jesus. I know. And you know what? The life I live is no longer me, but Christ who lives in me. We should be those people. When people hear that word, we should have a word from God that speaks a better word that they can anchor their soul in, not be one who comes alongside of them and just makes them try to feel comfortable in misery. Listen, you don't need to be made comfortable for very long. I get you grieve with those who grieve. You mourn with those who mourn. But there's a day coming where it's like, man, I can't do this anymore because if you keep staying there, you're going to get to the point where you can't get up. You're going to atrophy and you're going to start to shrivel up and die here in this valley. And I can't sit by and watch you do it. I can't stay here any longer. Like you can't stay here any longer. Not in a harsh way, not in a cruel way, not in an uncaring way, but in a loving way saying there's so much better than for you to lay down and die. Like that's why when David walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he didn't dry up and die and become one of those whose bones were found by Ezekiel. Why? I got into this valley following him. I'm coming out of this valley following him. Turn your Bibles to James. James chapter 1. I feel like it's another one of those maturing messages. Father, I just thank you for anointing the words that you've given me to speak. It's your anointing that breaks the yoke. It is not my word. It is not how well I deliver it, Father. It is the anointing of God on the words that you give me that will break the yoke and set the captive free. And Father, I'm just asking right now that you would anoint the words that you've given me, that they would go forth and accomplish what you sent them forth to accomplish. You don't have any promise of of my words not returning void, but you have a promise that your words won't return void. And so, Father, I'm believing for and expecting that your words will flow from my mouth today and that they will be anointed and that yokes will be destroyed, bondage will be broken, captives will be set free, the, the, the favorable year of the Lord declared. God, that it would be health and life to our bones, the food for our soul. In Jesus' name. Amen. So James chapter 1, James is writing to the church that is persecuted. They're scattered abroad. The honeymoon phase is kind of over, and now real life is facing them, and they are being persecuted. They're being chased. There's threats being uttered. That it is, it is not okay to be a Christian right now. Like, true persecution. Like, if you are a Christian, you are in violation of the rule of the land, and you are called a subverter, and you're called a terrorist, and you're called someone who is trying to overthrow the government that is in place, and that is not okay in the Roman Empire, and it is not okay for people to say that there is no king but Jesus, because Caesar demands that we say there is no king but Caesar. And this is where the church finds itself, and James is writing to them, and James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You realize that he says there's a way in life that we can lack nothing and it's found through perseverance through trials. Do you notice that James doesn't write this to people who are having an amazing time and everything is going right? And he, he, like, like, do you realize he never says, like, count it pure joy when everything in life is going your way? Why? Because nobody has a problem counting it joy when everything's going my way. 
That's automatic. That's a given. Like, we don't need encouragement to keep counting it joy when everything is going well. We live with joy when everything is going well. But he realizes that when we face trials of various, te- of various kind and testing, he says, listen, realize this. Don't take it personal. He doesn't say it's the testing of you. He says it's the testing of your faith. We take things so personally. We lose perspective so easily. The Bible says that the the ravens came because of the word that was sown. Meaning what? Before that word of God came into my life, there was nothing that was attracting the attack of the enemy to come and try and devour it. Why would I take that personally? Why would I shrink back and say, why, God? I can't believe you're letting this happen to me. It's like, no, listen, that's happening because there's something happening inside of you. This is the testing of your faith. This is that you could be lacking in nothing. The only way that I'll ever be lacking nothing is if I actually face testing and trial. If Jesus came to make me comfortable, then I'm going to not be able to follow him very long because at some point following Jesus will become very uncomfortable. If, If I started following Jesus to be happy, you know, happy response to external things. I'm only going to be able to follow Jesus for so long because in my life, I'm going to face things in the external which don't cause me to be happy. But if I started following him because he gave his life for me and he's worthy of my life lived. Not for what he will do for me in this life, although he promises to do a lot. The problem is this, is that if I am following him for what he will do for me, my idea of what he should do for me is built on my expectation. And so now all of a sudden I have this litmus test of if he's faithful or not, and it's based on things that I've made up. I made a pass-fail test and handed it to Jesus, and if he doesn't check the right box, I count him as a failure. Because you said this, and you said this, and you said that, and I know exactly what you meant, and I'm the teacher grading my life. And Jesus is the student who passes or fails. And we wouldn't say that. But if I'm determining the worth of following Jesus based on external things, then I have a test that I've created, and he can fail my test. I could stamp it with a big F. But if I realize that he already completed everything, that he finished everything, that he won and destroyed everything, then that means anything I see that doesn't look like it's been destroyed is an illusion that is created to get me to put my faith in something other than the finished work of Jesus. Like that has to be true. Either he really did defeat the enemy. He really did make a mockery of the demonic realm when he triumphed over them on the cross. He really did defeat death, hell, and the devil. He really did destroy the sting of death. He really did take back the keys. He really did say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go in my name. If he has it all, that means there's someone out there who has none. If I have... All of the tables that look like this in that room, that means there's nobody in this room that has a table that looks like this. You could tell me that you have one. 
You could try to make me think you have one. You could try to deceive me into believing and then living as though what you were saying is true, but it's an illusion. It's not true. Well, it feels true. Thank God that Jesus is Lord and not your feelings. Thank God that he is the one who is not a man that he should lie, not your feelings. Your feelings will lie to you so, so quickly if you let them. Come on, I use this example every time I talk about this because everybody can relate to it. You watched Old Yeller or Titanic and you cried. You cried like a little baby. Your wife walked in the room or your wife was watching the movie with you and you're over there going, man, I got allergies or something. I don't know what's going on over here. I got to go to the kitchen and they're wiping your eyes. Put yourself together, you're a man. No, listen, you knew it was fake before you started watching it. You knew it wasn't real before you started watching it, and yet what you were seeing that you knew wasn't real had a physical impact on your emotions and caused you to respond to it. Now, what happens when what you're being presented is being presented to you as truth and you believe it? You think that's not going to affect your emotions and cause some kind of response within you? It's an illusion. The only authority he has is that which we give him. The only foothold he has in your life is the one that you gave him. Paul says, do not give the devil a foothold. Why? Because he can't take a foothold, but he will take every single one I give him. He will not miss it. He's always probing, always prodding, always watching, always looking for a weak place. That's why we're supposed to put on the armor of God, not the armor of Roy. Because if it's me fighting him by myself, I'm not going to make it. But if he really does fight my battles for me, then that means that I can put my trust in him and take him at his word. And know and believe that he really does win every single battle. He's undefeated. He's never lost. He says, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You see how he ties going through trials and lacking nothing? And then he goes right into, but if any of you lacks wisdom, why? Because if I'm not going through trials and facing them with joy, it's because of something that I don't know or something I don't understand. It's a lack of wisdom that's keeping me from being able to do that. That's not just like a disconnected verse, like, and, and, and you'll go through the trials, and if you count them joy, endurance will have its perfect work in you, and you'll be lacking nothing. But if anybody lacks wisdom, what's he saying? If any of you lacks perspective, if any of you lacks the way to see it for what it is, if any of you lacks the, the ability to look through what you're seeing and hear what he's saying, if you lack that, ask it of God. He doesn't say, pull your bootstraps up and lace your boots up tighter. He didn't say white knuckle it and hold on harder and hope and pray that you get it right the next time. No, he says, listen, if you don't go through these things the way that you are called to go through them and it doesn't work in you what he desires for it to work in you, then there's a lack of wisdom. And if you find yourself being defeated every time you go through a trial, it's because of something I don't know, something I don't understand, or something that I don't believe. And ultimately, it's a lack of wisdom. It's a lack of knowing. My people are perished for lack of knowledge. My people, good people, 
People that love Jesus, people that believe he shed his blood on the cross for them, people who have prayed and, and asked him to forgive them. They've repented and turned and they, they believe that he's Lord and Savior. He says, those people, my people, that I call by my name, are being destroyed because of what they don't know. And that no isn't head knowledge recited with my lips. It's an intimate knowing. There's a union there. There's an intimacy there. There's a two becoming one there in that knowledge. And he says, my people are being destroyed because they haven't taken the truth and actually become one with it to where it's not just something I say, it's not just something I write, it's not just something that I pretend, it's the truth that's in the core of me that can't be shaken, that causes me to question anything that would present itself against that truth. Like now I'm trying to decide if this is true based on what goes on in my life. No, I've already decided that this is true, so now I'm determining what goes on in my life through the filter of truth. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously, who gives to all generously and without reproach. In other words, God is, when you go through something like you know, you can audit after you go through a trial. And you know what? The truth of the matter is, is you could look to everybody like you went through it well. What good would it be if everybody else thought you went through it well and you knew that that was a facade and deep inside you didn't have peace and joy? See, you know. I'm not saying were there not hard times that I not have to fall on my face and cry out to him because what I was hearing or what I was seeing was really attempting to try to shake me from what I believed and what I knew to be true. That's not weakness. That's submitting to him. And in my weakness, he's made strong. That's not faking it. That's saying, you know what? Right now, I would be tempted to faint if I hadn't believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's saying, you know what? The truth is, there were real things that really spoke and I really saw and they were attempting to make me faint, to shrink, to fall back, to withdraw, to adjust my stance and say, well, I guess, you know. But no, it's like he says, I would have. I would have done that. I don't, I don't deny that all this stuff was going on around me. I'm not in denial. I'm not being chased from cave to cave by people that want to eat my flesh whose teeth are like razors. He writes this stuff. He's not living in denial of that. He's saying, nevertheless, like, yes, all that is true, but I have a greater truth. I believe something that won't let me become a product of what I see because of what I've seen. It won't let me become a product of what I know because of what I know. Like, that's the good fight of faith. The good fight of faith is, A, a fight he called you to. There's a lot of people fighting battles they were never called to fight. There's a lot of people expending a lot of energy, shadow boxing and chasing ghosts and making things all about something other than what it's really about. That's not a good fight. A good fight is one that he called me to. A good fight is one that I followed him into and he led me into the battle. If I didn't get into the fight following Jesus, I probably should turn around and go find Jesus. Well, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. I I understand that he's with me, but he's everywhere I go isn't where he led me. 
And if I continue to walk into battles that I'm not called to, I could come out on the other side gaining nothing from the experience except for a dinged body or a dinged ego or dinged pride or dinged all these things that just get dinged. When I'm trying to live on my own and fight my own battles, I'm being prideful and following my own way. I've engaged in things that I was never called to engage in. I, I might get my lunch eaten there. What a weird thing it would be if I said, well, I tried following Jesus and look what it got me. It's like, no, you said you were following Jesus and then you ran and asked him to follow you and then got mad when you lost the fight. The good fight is the one that he leads you into. Why? Because then I have confidence. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why? Because I'm not worried about you cracking me over the head with the rod. That's for the enemy. That's for the one who would come to try to steal the sheep. His staff isn't to break your legs. It's to crush the head of the enemy. That's why David said, I I fear no evil. He didn't say there's no evil there. He said, I just don't fear it. Why? You're with me. Why do I get afraid and look behind me every time I hear a noise? Some people are so jumpy. I mean, like in the spirit, like anytime there's a whisper of anything, it's like, oh no, what's the devil doing? What's the enemy doing? Looking for the devil behind every bush. It's like, man, the devil is a defeated, withering, cut off branch. He doesn't deserve our attention. Our eyes aren't supposed to be fixed on him and we're not supposed to be looking for him. If we run into him, we're equipped with everything we need because if I run into the enemy following Jesus, then he led me into that battle. That means he believes that I'm capable of overcoming through the blood of the lamb, the word of my testimony, and not loving my own life unto death. So now all of a sudden, like, I'm not saying I'm fearless in a boastful way. I'm saying I would have to fear him less to fear something else. I would have to be more in awe of something else than him to be fearful. He doesn't lead us into fights to lose. And he knows where we're at. He knows our hearts. He he doesn't watch our Facebook post to locate our faith or our heart. Men do. He looks right through and he sees our heart. And he knows where we're at. Remember he told the Israelites, he said, I'm going to lead them this way out of Egypt. Made no sense the way he led them. If you look at where they were and where he wanted them to go, the fact that they took the route that they took made zero sense. But he said this, he said, right now, if they were to go and see the Nephilim, they would faint, lose heart, and want to go back. What was he saying? You know what? There's a day coming. I'm going to lead them into that battle. But today is not the day because there's some things in them that I need to do. There's some things I need them to learn. I need to mature them. I need to teach them to trust me and obey me. And right now, if I was to lead them into that battle, even if I led them into the battle, they would get faint, turn around, and want to go back to Egypt. So I'm not going to take them there yet, but I will take them there someday. Why? Because he really wants us to win the battle. Now, it was not supposed to take 40 years for them to go and win the battle. That came, why? For they too had this gospel preached to them in the wilderness, yet it profited them nothing, for they did not combine faith with the hearing of the word. What happened? For 40 years, they wandered around not believing what he said, so they were never ready for that battle that he wanted them to fight. They never took possession of the land he wanted them to take possession of, and they died in the wilderness, even though the gospel was preached to them. 
the good news, the truth was preached to them. And then Jesus comes and said, I came to make the crooked path straight. He goes out into the wilderness and accomplishes in 40 days what the Israelites couldn't do in 40 years. What's that? Put his trust in the Lord and not what he saw and overcome the enemy by the word of God and trusting him and loving his own life, not unto death. When you think about that, like if Jesus really came to right every wrong, then that means everything that he did was to put something into place that was meant to be from the beginning. Forty years of wandering around. And the crazy part is, is that they had these moments where they trusted him. And they saw his victory. Yet they didn't let those moments change them. They became stories they told, but not something they expected. When you live on stories of what God did without an expectation of what he will do caused by it, like then you're a museum of God's move of the past, but you're not a present-day display of the power of God. Like if, if what he has done and remembering that doesn't change the way that I see the next thing that I face, then it profits me nothing. I think that's why Jesus, after a while, was like, how long must I be with you? What's he saying to them? He's not cutting them down. He's genuinely asking them, guys, how long is it going to take of being with me before you trust and believe what I say so that the next time you face something, you're not right back where you started, fearful, panicking, and thinking you're going to die? And you know the truth of the matter is he's so good and so loving that the answer was three and a half years. And so he stayed three and a half years with them. He didn't leave until they were ready. Like that's what balances out that you could take it really harsh of Jesus saying, how long must I be with you? How long must I suffer with you? But then you realize, oh, he knew and he did. And then he realizes, okay, they're at the point now where if I leave and the Spirit of God comes inside of them, they'll become my martyrs. They'll become my witnesses. They won't turn around. They won't shrink back. Peter won't be running off naked with someone holding onto his coat ever again because they got it. Come on, he wants the same thing for you and me. This isn't about like, oh, this is me getting better. No, this is me learning to trust in him to put my faith in him, and then to live based on what I believe. Come on, believer, believe. Like if I go through a trial and my life looks just like the person who says there is no God, then what does it profit me to say that I believe? Trials test our faith, and it's not for God. He knows where our faith is. It's for us. When I go through these things, it's a great chance for me to be completely honest with myself and ask, how did I do? Again, none of this isn't a pride for Every bit of this is assuming that we are born again in Christ, dependent on his spirit. No longer I that live, but he that lives in me. I'm following Jesus. He's growing me and maturing me. He's bringing the good work that he started to, in me into completion. Okay, so this isn't a self-analyzing, negative, beat myself up thing. This is saying, like, like how is what I say I believe affecting my life, or am I more affected by things that are out there than the truth that's in here? And be honest with ourselves. Why? Because it's a test of my faith. 
How did I do? If I was to put a grade on it, would I, would I, would I say I did 100%? Would it be 96? Did I get an A? Did I get a B? Did I do better on this test than I did on the last test? Did I get a D last time and this time I feel like I squeaked out a C? Not for the sake of beating myself up and self-condemning, for the sake of saying I want to grow up into all things Him. And the only way that I know there's places to grow is when I see that there's places I need to grow. You realize, like, as you progressed in school, the test got harder and harder. Why? Because they trusted that what you had already learned brought you to a place that you could pass a more difficult test. If you kept getting 2 plus 2 and 3 plus 2 was all you got throughout school, you'd get an A on every test, but you wouldn't have grown anywhere from the day you started until the day that you graduated. Well, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. No, but he did, and he led you into it. He thought you were capable. Just make sure that he led you into it. That's the key word. Because if he didn't, there may be a reason it feels way too hard for you. Why? I'm fighting a fight that he never called me to fight. I'm not equipped. I'm wasting my time. He doesn't even want me to win this one. Why? Because worse than, 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 than going into a test he called me into and realizing there's some room for me to grow would be passing tests that was never pass, meant to pass so that I keep moving in that direction. I honestly feel like succeeding at things we weren't called to succeed at is probably more dangerous than failing at things we were called to succeed at because at least if I'm failing at something I was called to succeed at, when I get up and try again, I'm trying the right thing again. I can look at it. I can say, who is my faith in? Who or what is my trust in? How did I respond? What was my dependence on? See, here's the thing about self-reliance is that in an easy test, if I rely on myself, it doesn't build my faith in anything but me. That means when the test gets a little bit harder, the only thing I have to draw on is my amazing performance, my abilities, my wisdom, my strength my peace and all of that is dictated by me and most of that is controlled by externals and sometimes i'm going to face tests that i can't pass on my own he doesn't want me to pass on my own because he wants my dependence to be on him and so even if i could get through it by myself it does nothing for maturing me except for build my strength and my faith in my ability the problem with that is then I can only go as far as my ability takes me. That ain't very far. For some people it's farther than others, but for nobody is it the trajectory that Jesus has us on. Even the greatest self-reliant person can't make it as far as the weakest person who says, you know what, I, I, I'm not the smartest, I'm not the fastest, I'm not the brightest, but I love Jesus. And I know his spirit lives within me. And I know that everything he's called me to do in life, I can do. Because I can do all things through he that strengthens me. Come on, that's a way more powerful person than someone who knows everything and is physically stronger and mentally tougher. And yet doesn't actually put their faith in something other than themselves. Because there's always someone bigger. There's always someone faster. Look at Goliath. Who was his confidence in? Himself. And it got him pretty far. 
Like in the earthly realm, he was considered to be the greatest warrior in a, in a generation and a nation of warriors. He'd been fighting since he was a youth. He'd already killed more people by the time David came, I mean at David's age, than most men would by the time that they were at the end of their lives. He was a warrior from his youth. He was skilled. He was trained. He was strong. He had the best weapons, the biggest spear, the biggest sword, the heaviest armor. His armor bearer was bigger than David. His shield was probably bigger than David. And all his trust was in himself. And he said, you come and I will destroy you. He says this, he says, what am I, a dog? That you come at me with sticks? I honestly feel like that should be our response to the enemy when he tries to attack. What am I, a dog? Did you come at me with sticks? Don't you know the one that lives inside of me? Don't you remember every time you fought him what's happened? Like my confidence is in him. Like you're, you're a kitten. Well, he goes about like a roaring lion. What does that mean? He goes about trying to get people to believe the illusion that he is bigger and more stronger than he really is, seeking whom he may devour. Not seeking to devour, seeking whom he may. Why is there a whom he may in there? Because he can't just devour anyone. And in a fight of lions, the lion of Judah is a whole lot bigger and stronger than the the whimpering enemy who's looking for a reason that he can make you think that he's stronger. I promise you. I didn't even know where I was going with that. Oh, Goliath. I do know. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Uh, But Goliath has gone as far as a man can go on his own in war. He's the champion of champions, the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the most powerful, biggest, heaviest weapons. And David walks onto the scene, and he's the smallest of a small family. The Jewish people aren't big people. Okay, in general, you don't see very many tall, ethnically Jewish people. And he's the smallest of a family of smaller men. He's the youngest. He's not even considered possible that he could be king, meaning what? From the outside, there was nothing impressive about David. So much so that when, when Samuel says, get all of your sons, he gets all of them at David because it's not even a thought in his mind that it could possibly be David. Probably the eldest, maybe the second to eldest. If not him, it's him and him and him and him and him. But if it's not them, then this dude isn't a prophet of the Lord because it certainly ain't David. And yet he's the one who God chooses. And David shows up onto the scene and all he talks about is what God will do. All he talks about is what God has done. But he didn't just let that be stories of who God was. He let it convince him and put his faith that it was who God would be. So he says, he has delivered me from the lion and the bear. Surely he shall deliver the head of this uncircumcised Philistines into my hands. 
Come on, that's, that's allowing the fights that we go through to actually make sure we come out lacking nothing so that the next fight we go into, whether we realized we took it with us or not, we didn't lose anything in the trial. We actually came out with something. It says, so that when you go through them, if you will endure, if you will, it says, if you like patience or endurance, that, says, that, that means the cheerful expectation of good. That means hope and that means constant. He says, if you can remain cheerful and hopeful and constant, fixed and expecting to see his goodness, on the other side, when you come out of it, you come out of it lacking nothing. That means what? That trial didn't cost me anything. In fact, I gained something through it. He did. And you know what's crazy about that is there were two men that trusted in their swords that day. One was Goliath and one was Saul. Goliath trusted his sword. He said, if you come at me, I will cut you up. Saul trusted his sword. He told David, he said, if you're going to go and fight him, at least take my sword and take my armor. David puts his armor on. He can't even move. The sword just feels clunky. And he says, king, I can't go into battle with these things. I haven't tested them yet. In other words, what? I don't trust anything that your man is trying to give me to tell me this is what I need. I trust that he gave me everything that I need through what I went through. And that's what I'm taking into the next battle. I don't need your sword. I don't need your armor. If I needed it, I would have got it in one of the trials I went through before, and I'd already have it. I'm convinced that I have everything I need for this battle because he led me to it, and he knows what I have. What did he need? He needed this right here. Surely he will deliver the head of that uncircumcised Philistine into my hands. Coincidentally, for three days, David dragged the head of Goliath around with his hands. The Bible's not boring. You are. <laughs> Come on, read it. And don't just let it be a Bible story that you filled out where there's a Philistine laying with a neat little cut on his head and the guy on the ground looks, you know. No, he was a barbarian. And David went over and took the very sword he trusted in and he cut his head off and he held it up to embolden the armies of Israel. What happened? When they saw that David overcame the Philistine by the one that he put his trust in, they put their trust in that and they overtook and did what they couldn't do before one person said, I can it says they came out of the caves, they came out of hiding, they came out of fear. Why? Because one person refused to cower because he knew if God brought me here, I promise you it's going to be a bad day for one of us and it is not me. And if you choose and are foolish enough to take on and defy, not me. See, we don't take it personally. Why? Because I don't trust in me. He didn't say who is this Philistine that dares to defy the shepherd of the son of Jesse? Doesn't he know what I did? Has he not heard about the lion? Has he not heard about the bear? See, we take it personally, then we make our trust in us personally, and now we're fighting personally. He doesn't do that. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare to defy the army of the living God? God has delivered me from the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear. He said, Listen, he says this. He says, when the lion and the bear came and took a lamb, I went after them and pursued them and killed them and got it back. You realize David didn't fight off a lion or a bear. It says a lion or a bear came and took a lamb. And he wasn't okay with them taking something that belonged to his father. Something that he'd been entrusted to watch over. He could have just sat back and been like, well, we still have a bunch of sheep. Come on, don't sit back and let the enemy come and steal things that have been trusted to you by your father and say, well, at least I've still got this. David was like, no, this is an injustice. 
And this is not okay. And if the enemy came and took that and I've been entrusted to keep that, I'm not okay sitting back and counting what I have left. I'm going after it and I'm not stopping until I get that back. He said, I pursued him, killed him, and took the lamb back. What does that mean? It means the things the enemy stole aren't dead yet. Don't give up on them. Don't just let him take them. Go after them. We get an attack and all of a sudden we shrink back and we think, well, that's dead. How do you know? Well, I mean, obviously, Matt Logic would tell you that if a lion came and stole a lamb, that it's probably hungry, so I'm sure it took it to eat it. How do you know? Why don't you go chase that lion down, trusting in the Lord? Why don't you slay it and take back what was given to you and entrusted to you to watch over by your father? And the very sword he trusted is the very sword that ended his life. But there was another man that trusted his sword that day. It was Saul. Saul said, listen, if you're going to go fight him, at least take my armor. At least take my sword. What's he saying? I'm going to tell you what I trust in by what I think you need in this moment. You ever notice the advice people give you when you're going through something, how so much of it, even Christian people, doesn't sound like what I find in the Word of God? Why? They're telling you what they put their trust in. Here's my armor. Here's my sword. These are the things that I trust to keep me safe. And you know what? Saul wasn't doing it with an evil heart. People are not doing it with an evil heart. They can only give you what they trust if they think that you're going into battle and you're not prepared. Come on, like, Saul wasn't trying to be evil. He wanted David to kill Goliath. He said, if you defeat our champion, we'll become your servants. He's the king. Of course he wants someone to kill Goliath. He tries to talk David out of it first, but then he realizes, I can't talk him out of it. Well, if I can't stop him from going into the fight, then I'm going to at least make sure that I give him the things that I trust. The problem is this, is if Saul's armor and Saul's sword could kill Goliath, Saul would have already done it. People that live defeated lives that look nothing like Jesus should not be giving you their armor and their sword. I don't mean that in a ridiculing way. I'm saying, listen to who you're listening to. You wouldn't take driver's ed lessons from a guy that pulled up and every, dent, every car, panel in his car was dented. And he said, hey man, if we get pulled over, just know my driver's license is suspended. I've had too many accidents. He'd be like, I don't want to learn from you. Because your way of doing what you do got you where you are. I don't want my life to look like your car. I'm not learning from you. Saul, when they're defeated in battle, takes the sword and ends his life with it and dies by falling on his sword. Why? Because Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The sword that you trust in is the sword that will be your demise. Better put your trust in a sword that never fails, that hasn't lost a sword fight yet. Oh, yeah. All right, we're going to, we'll get into the rest of it. Why don't you guys just stand to your feet real quick?
if you're fighting a battle right now, I don't, it doesn't matter what it is. I just want you to inventory real quick. Did I get into this fight by following Jesus? Did I get here where I am? Am I fighting this battle because I followed Jesus into it? If the answer is no, repent. That means turn from. That means put down that sword you weren't called to pick up. Turn your back on the enemy you weren't called to fight. And walk in the opposite direction because that's where Jesus is leading you. Yeah, but you don't understand. I already started. I'm not a quitter. Listen, I would way rather quit something I wasn't called to than, than succeed with the rest of my life and finally come to the end and finally win only to find out I was never meant to fight that battle to begin with. Who cares if I won? It's like an argument with your wife. Who cares if you win? <laughs> Either way, you lose. So if, if that's the case and, and you'd be honest with yourself right now and you'd say, you know, I don't, I don't even know that this battle I'm fighting is something he led me into. I would just encourage you to really seek him. I don't think, you know, I don't think if you know right now, then repent right now. But, but honestly, if you can't say, you know what, I got into this fight, I got to this battle, I got to this valley because I was following Jesus. If you can't say that with certainty, then I would just ask that when you leave here today, you go home and you get alone with the Lord and you seek him and you ask him, am I fighting battles you never called me to? I might be fighting multiple battles. I want to make sure all of them are the battle that you've called me to because that's the good fight of faith. And I can trust you in that, not me. And I know that on the other side of it, I come out lacking nothing. Lacking no good thing. Because you didn't lead me into this battle to diminish me. You led me into this battle for me to win and to grow and to mature and to be more certain. I'm not supposed to lose something. I'm supposed to come out with something I didn't go into it with. So if you're, if you're fighting a battle or battles that you know he called you to, you know that you know, I got into this by following Jesus, whatever that is, then I just want to pray for you right now. If you know that you know this battle I'm fighting, I'm here because I follow Jesus. I can see his footsteps leading me right to where I am. I want you to just raise your hands real quick and I want the church to pray for you. Come on, is there anybody fighting battles? Come on, nobody. I mean, if you're not fighting a battle, the Bible says we battle not against flesh and blood. So that means either a bunch of you got to go home and repent for fighting things you weren't called to fight or some of you need to wake up and realize that you're in a battle. Because it doesn't say we battle not. It says we battle not against flesh and blood. We're in a battle. If we're following Jesus, we should constantly be coming against the enemy himself and, and against the forces of hell. That might be in relationships. That might be in ministry. That might be in your home. That might be in your job place. That might be in, in any number of things. But we're all built for battle. Every one of us. Well, let's just do this then because there's a lot of you with hands up. Father God, I just pray that right now you would re-strengthen and re-encourage and reinvigorate everyone who's fighting a battle you've led them into. That their trust wouldn't be in themselves, that their faith wouldn't be in their faith, that their faith would be in you, the faithful one. 
that they wouldn't be tempted to grab armor and swords from people who are ill-equipped to fight the fight that you've called them to, that they wouldn't put their trust in what other people put their trust in. For some men trust in horses and some men trust in chariots, but as for me, I'm putting my trust in the Lord. You may not be able to see that I'm equipped for the battle, but I'm telling you right now, if he led me into it, he saw that I was. I don't need your sword. I don't need your armor. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I haven't tested them. So I have to go into this battle with the things that brought me here, the things that are tested, the things that are proven. Father, would you right now just come and just re-encourage, re-strengthen, refocus. Come on, give us crystal clear vision for what it is that you've called us to. Give us crystal clear focus for the battle that you've called us to. God, I pray for the restoration of joy for people who feel battle weary. God, that the joy doesn't come from the external circumstances being different. It comes from the fact that I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able. And so I have joy now because I know that one day when I walk out of this trial, I'm going to look more like him and I'm going to be better equipped. So I'm not going to wait until I get through it to start celebrating. I'm going to celebrate now because all your promises are yes and amen. So right now, God, I just ask that you would re-strengthen, re-encourage, refocus, realign. That joy and peace would be our thermostat. In Jesus' name, amen.